Welcome to our podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Carrie. And And this this is Filter Free. Free. her at the child placing agency back in 2017 she is here to discuss her current endeavors how she got into the field she is currently a mom of three and she has a lot of experience in the social welfare area and we are so excited to have her here today so without further ado hello lauren hello so how are you here great i'm so glad you're here yeah we're so excited that you said yes to coming onto our podcast We, like Alexa said, have known Lauren for about five or six years now. She used to work with us at the CPA as a case manager. And after that, she went into a different line of work as a family advocate. And so that perspective, I think, will be really cool for people who are listening to learn about. It's something that I really didn't know much about, but I think is really cool. And I think will help for people to uh, gain more knowledge. And also, I think that just what kind of drove her to foster care, what drove her to social work, field is interesting and I think will ring true to a lot of people. So I guess, Lauren, will you tell us, Alexis mentioned you are a mom, a mom of three mm-hmm. now. When we knew her originally, she did not have any kiddos. Uh, mm-hmm. She was, you were married. I was brand new married. Brand new married. Um, since then, she's had three girls. And so she has built a life outside of, of work um, that I know she's proud of. And so I guess just tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of where you are now and then maybe just go ahead and go into kind of how you got into this field specifically. Sure. Yeah, so I'm married um, in 2017, right after I graduated. So I have a bachelor's degree in social work and I have a master's degree in social work as well that I went on to get after my bachelor's. Um, a year, I took a year off just to kind of see, do I like this field? Do I want to mm-hmm. do it for the long run? Um, I love it. And so I went ahead and got my master's and then got my license as well. So I am a licensed social worker. Like they mentioned, I do have three girls. I have a three-year-old daughter, and then I have four-month-old twin girls. So I um, have made the decision to stay home with them, so I'm pausing a little bit of my career mm-hmm. to be home with them for a season, but very much passionate about the world of child welfare and kind of how it got here. Um, so I'll share a little bit about my experience. I um, Before I became a licensed social worker and really kind of dappled in this field, I spent some time overseas doing missions work, and saw just poverty and other things that affected our world on yeah. another level. And then when I came home after six months in that arena, really researched what do people have degrees in in order to work in these fields, essentially. Yeah. And social work was one of the main ones. And I appreciated social work also because I felt like at any point in my life, if I had a like a midlife crisis, I could mm-hmm. leave one field and mm-hmm. go into the other and whatever. And so I liked that I wasn't necessarily confined to being a teacher, being a doctor, being whatever. Yeah. So I did that and studied. And then, um, like they said, I went into foster care. I have a personal experience of foster care in my family. My family fostered and we adopted. So I have a pretty big age gap between myself and my brother. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's eight. And so it's, it's just really cool to see kind of how those experiences played a part into my professional mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And I guess about that piece of your life, did your parents, did, did they foster while you guys were little or was that something that just came after you guys were grown? No. So they did not foster when I was little. They um, fostered once I became an adult. Mm-hmm. They actually started once we were empty nesters. 
Um, my mom worked in corporate America, and they just kind of felt a shift in their life. Of, yeah. Okay, we're empty nesters. Now what? That's and so, cool. so yeah. um, they looked into fostering, and we're only um, a foster motivated home never really motivated to adopt and mm-hmm. then the lord worked on their heart and, and kind of changed some things for them and so they became adoption motivated that's cool. parents how again. many kids did they end up fostering he was the only one that they ever oh fostered. my <laughs> the only one <laughs> that's sweet yeah okay so that kind of played a part i guess kind of just added another layer of this is awesome mm-hmm. this is something that would you know be cool to do so when you got into the field what was your first job in the social child welfare world. Mm-hmm. So I worked at the child placing agency mm-hmm. with foster families. With us. Yes. With us. And there you served as a case manager, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And I guess we kind of did a gamut of everything, but you had experience with development, yes. right? And then, so you saw families from development to licensing to mm-hmm. getting placements, foster cares and adoptions. Right. Okay. And how long did you spend there? A little over a year I was there. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then you were traveling quite a bit because that's when we had our Fort Worth office and you lived north. North. I was north. You were north. Mm -hmm. Okay. Far north. Yes, far north. Yeah. So the idea was I would take the the families that lived in that area. Yeah. Avoiding the Fort Worth ones. I feel like that's not really how it ended up being. No. (laughs) So, okay, so. Moving on. In all honesty, no, really. Why Why did you leave? Was that part of the reason why you left? Yeah, I mean, I think it like it was an over an hour commute. Mm-hmm. Think things were starting to shape out a little differently than I ever imagined them mm-hmm. to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that when I started to evaluate, do I want to stay as a bachelor level social worker? Do I want to go on and learn mm-hmm. the goals for my life in my profession? A master's was pretty much the only way to go, mm-hmm. and there was it was very limiting in the position that I was in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you, where did you end up after that job? Yeah, so I um, found myself at a. Uh, Child Advocacy Center. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I guess, so let's touch on the Advocacy Center because I think a lot of people, especially for us, I mean, for me specifically, like you spend 10 years in one field. I don't, I guess my branch has not really gone that far out, mm-hmm. but you have some experience there. My mom actually works in a, in a uh, facility kind of, well, really the same, different location. And so I feel like learning more about that, it's so interesting. And I, I want people to know what we have in our backyard as far as a yes. resource. Because if you hear something, you have to say mm-hmm. something, and people need to know that there are resources that we we can't necessarily refer, but they need to know yes. that we have it. Right. And so the advocacy center specifically, tell us kind of how that works. Like, what is it? How do people get there? Mm-hmm. And then what do you guys do? Sure. So an advocacy center is a multidisciplinary team of of multiple professions. So I kind of feel like it's like a dumping ground of, mm-hmm. of professionals in the sure. field. Um, And so it is law enforcement, CPS, and then within the CAC model, there's forensic interviewers, family advocates, community educators, therapists. Mm -hmm. Um, And so within those professionals, we're all working the case together. Mm -hmm. And so we partner directly with law enforcement and CPS when they are doing their investigations. And we also work with the legal team. So we work directly with the district attorney's office also. So cool. It is very cool. So basically, if, if something is going on, whether the police are involved or CPS is involved, is it is it right that they communicate if necessary to kind of over overlap, I guess? they. Yes. So a screener would get the report that's mm-hmm. generated from Child Protective Services or DFPS, and then it is shared with law enforcement and it's shared with um, CPI. And oh, so okay. then together they're working their case. Gotcha. Um, 
they can determine if they need a forensic interview based on what the, re- the report is stating. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the child investigators will go out and do their investigation and never necessarily need to come to the advocacy center. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are doing the forensic interviews on cases that they do meet the criteria. Okay. For do you feel like this is a good model when working with these families, like having all these different kinds of people mm-hmm. working together? And do you guys like have weekly meetings or monthly meetings? Because I know at the CPA, there were a lot of people working on the same case, but no one was really in communication. Right. So there was a lot going mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. that people didn't know about. Right. So it seems like you guys kind of have it nailed down to where it's more in-house, right. if that makes sense. Well, it is because um, the one that I worked at hosts the professionals that work in there. So law enforcement and the CPS um, mm-hmm. workers were all in the same building essentially and so with that came great opportunity to foster those conversations and so weekly we had what we call multidisciplinary team meetings Mm -hmm. and so we met with the attorney would be present and then or an attorney on the team of the child welfare and then we would have all of our law enforcement was present the forensic interviewer the cps worker and so basically we would staff these cases collectively every single week Mm, um so what happens is and i can kind of like work through the model of it so Mm -hmm. an investigation comes through the forensic interview takes place while the forensic interview is taking place we are determining or law enforcement or cps is determining if there's a protective caregiver if there is and there typically is one that's transporting them to the center then Mm -hmm. myself would as the family advocate would greet um, that caregiver and spend a lot of time going over what does this look like and i think that there's so much value in that because the cases that i worked specifically were of an outside perpetrator not necessarily in home there could have been an in-home perpetrator but it didn't necessarily meet the criteria for a removal of the child and so with that came a lot of confusion because the parent came in and was saying my kid is having a forensic interview but what does this mean for me Mm. and so if it met criteria for law enforcement to do an arrest or things like that then we worked with those caregivers from the start of the forensic all the way through their criminal case Mm -hmm. and so in that initial meeting we were going over with them the resources available to them so crime victims compensation comes from the attorney general's office families don't realize that they can get their re- their reimbursement for specific things pertaining to their investigation so mm-hmm. if law enforcement confiscates property like a cell phone or clothing for dna or wow. things of that nature then you can file it for the cbc and I so even have thought of that. Mm-hmm. there has to be a criminal component in the case in order for that to come through mm-hmm. um, and so that's one of the things we were working with the families on is getting that reimbursement available and then once they're eligible then they have a caseworker with the cbc so they work to get them the funds reimbursed yeah so we kind of like tap out at that point mm-hmm. that's one of the things we're also explaining to them the model how is this going to work what's the next step from mm-hmm. from all this process so once they have that forensic interview law enforcement continues to do their investigation and then we meet collectively as a team together huh. to discuss it and is it specific things that you see like is it is it all human trafficking is it all sexual abuse is it like a whole array of things so we saw a lot um, primarily sex abuse and physical abuse is what mm-hmm. we saw the most of we did do interviews for um trafficking as well mm-hmm. um and i say we but i mean like advocacy center centers in general we'll yeah do i was gonna say interviews. as far as like i know there's advocacy centers kind of all over different counties do you know like statistically is it like is that the same for everybody that you all see or is it 
I guess, could it be different for each county? Like, I think it's different for each county because you have to think through the demographics of what their counties are. And sure, every right. county works their system a little bit differently. Yeah. And how they conduct their interviews and how they conduct their investigations. So interesting. Mm-hmm. And this was a wide array of ages as well? Of the victims? Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. And also, so um, you do that, you have family advocates, the, the kiddos can come in, but, and you said you kind of have like multi, multidisciplinary um, teams, mm-hmm. but you also have services that you, that benefit like other family members. So like siblings and things like that as well, right? Right. So once they're um, classified with us that they had a protective caregiver, and if there was a criminal case, then they would have the qualifications were met that they could have therapy services as well. So if it, some of them just don't have a criminal case, is that right? Correct. Like they maybe have the investigation and they close it out or they oh, determine like this is more of a CPS case. Law enforcement doesn't have a criminal case, mm-hmm. but um, CPS is going to work it instead. Gotcha. Law enforcement can close their cases out. Okay. So you guys primarily continue to serve if law enforcement, if there's criminal pieces, but if the criminal is out, then that basically goes to CPS and they sift through everything that way. Yes. And you I guys drop off? My position dropped off. Okay. So. There was criteria in certain situations that if they met, because of our advocacy center, um, we had other things like interns could work with the clients if there was not necessarily a criminal case because criminal cases were left to staff members and then interns could help with like the immediate needs of connecting with resources and things like that mm-hmm. um, for families wow. from CPS. Yeah, it's a whole new world. It's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense because there's kind of a, um, I mean, I knew that law enforcement kind of worked collectively with CPS, but... It's interesting that they, you know, I guess that there's like a whole different team that can kind of help carry on. But it makes sense because you, they need those resources, the families right. do, you know? Right. So interesting. Okay, Weird. so how long did you, did you serve in that role? So I was there for four and a half years. Nice. Mm-hmm. And the reason that you left from that position specifically is just to pretty much stay at home after right. the twins were born. Yes. Um, so I guess you've spent collectively what, it, like, seven years in the field so far Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so I guess throughout that time what is self-care we we talked a little bit last week about Mm -hmm. well a couple weeks ago just about self-care and how important that is because in this field can you kind of speak to what that looks like as far as in both of the roles that you've served in I know you served with the advocacy a lot longer and we talked a little bit before this podcast just about the work that you guys do there's it's pretty deep and it's Mm -hmm. you see a lot of really intense stuff so how do you kind of put up that barrier or take care of your mental health right what does that look like sure I think it's really important that a professional working honestly in any environment especially pertaining to child welfare has boundaries I think so many times the question gets asked and maybe I'll get it too is like how do you do this every single day how do you see what you see and like not take it home with you I feel like you've always been good about your boundaries I was gonna say that looking back at like 2017 Mm -hmm. you from the get-go you're like Nope. This cross nope. is about not me. It's too late. No, I'm not. Yeah. This is too stressful for me. I can't do this right now. I'll get back to you. Like, right. I feel like you were always very was good that a about school? separating that. And I do think that that was like ingrained in us in school. Okay. Ethics are my number one. Like, I'm going to mm-hmm. stand hard on this right here. And it's actually funny. Anytime there was an ethical dilemma or any questions that came up, interns would come flocking to my office. I have a question. What do I do about this? Mm-hmm. Um, because to me, Honestly, especially because I'm licensed, you have to be ethical. Mm-hmm. But boundaries are so valuable and important in that part of ethics and really keep you going in this field. Otherwise, you're going to burn out and tap mm-hmm. out and be like, I'm done here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, too, having an environment that's safe and supportive of you is going to be 
really important. And so one of the reasons for leaving the CPA is that it felt like there was just this constant like open door policy that clients had with you or that parents had with you. And that really becomes taxing on Mm -hmm. the worker. And I don't think that parents understood that. And I don't think that their intention was to ever feel like they had full access to us, but because they essentially did have full access to Mm -hmm. us. Mm Um, and y'all know, like they had our personal cell phone numbers and they had all those things. And so that was one of the things when I moved over and transitioned roles is they had our office phone number, our clients did, and that was it. Um, they had professional email. They never had any contact with us outside of this. And so, and I had fair share, you know, times where clients would say something like, I saw you in the grocery store, or I saw you at this. Mm-hmm. And okay, great. If you ever see me out in public, I can't come up to you. You can come you and can say come hi to, to me, me, but I'm not going to acknowledge you. And I think you have to recognize too, wherever your client is, they're in a vulnerable state. And sometimes you're the hero in their life. And so when they do see you outside of work or wherever it is, they're thrilled to see you. Mm -hmm. And so just keeping that professional boundary. But I think going back to self-care is so important to have those boundaries in place. And so then also recognizing self-care looks different for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so I think so often self-care is expected to be a physical activity or something like that, but really getting creative and figuring out what does this look like for me? And so for me, it did include some physical activity, but it also included vacations. And so my husband and I made sure to take an annual trip somewhere, whether it would be international or local, but it was just, we're tapping out, we're turning our phones off, we're not connecting with the world and we're just kind of getting away. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was one of the things that we really prioritized, but even just simple things like utilizing your PTO. That was something that the agency I worked at was really big on. Like, hey, Mm -hmm. you have it. It's going to disappear soon, so you might as well use it. Mm -hmm. I feel like that wasn't a big thing at the CPA that we worked at. Yeah, I feel like we maybe accrued accrued time, but honestly, for me personally, I felt like if I was taking the PTO, it was it was more taxing to like know that I was taking that time off, but then to come back, yeah. what were you gonna walk back into, right? right? If you take five days off, seven days off, and go out of the country or whatever, it's like, it just, it felt more mentally taxing to know that I would be walking into something that, you know, and I wouldn't have kept track of it for that, for seven days, it just, it right. was more exhausting that way. So I just kept, kept doing it. Yeah. And I think we've talked a little bit about the personal phone and that, you know, is specific for agency to agency. But for our provider, that was something that we brought to light a lot because that's frustrating. Mm-hmm. There's no way to turn that off. Um, if my mom's calling or foster mom's calling, you know, and, and we are on call 24 seven. So I do get that. But I know a lot of providers that offer like an on-call case management service, mm-hmm. which I think is, is fantastic because you have to have to be able, you have to be able to turn it off. You have to, you know. So, and I think for me too, just from an ethics standpoint, like I came into this field, and I think there's a lot of people out there who are are foreign to it, right? I didn't. A lot of the girls that were around just had a social work background, and I did not. And so, it was interesting when you guys would like say certain things because, like the grocery, like I don't even think twice about that, you know. Mm-hmm. But those are just ethics and things that. Yeah, that's we, something we learn in school in the yeah. social work program. Yeah. So um, just those healthy boundaries. And I hope that, you know, if people are listening, like if they're foster parents, just knowing that we we, we prided ourselves on creating good relationships. Mm-hmm, and I think right. we did a really good job of that with foster families and those kids. But, and like you said, they're at a vulnerable state. Even the foster parents, it's taxing what oh, they do, yeah. you know? And um, knowing that they can come to us and, and talk to us, but also res- I feel like there were a handful that didn't really respect our space and texting just all the time. Messing yeah, up. and then if we didn't respond, they're like, what? "Hello, call someone else." And be like, "So and so isn't answering." Uh-huh. But I think like, that that goes why? to saying so much about like when it comes to 
if you are a foster parent in this field, you have to take the priority of self-care upon yourself too mm-hmm. yeah. and surrounding yourself with a community of support. And so yes. use the respite, use the, op- the opportunities that are around you. There are so many local agencies that are providing, mm-hmm. you know, I know of a few that even for post-adoption services that are still connecting and still providing the support to the families and, hey, they're doing a ball game, like go be a part of those things so that you have the support around you yeah. and Absolutely. use those resources available to you yeah. to be a connecting and to kind of give your case managers a little bit of a break. Yeah, I think that's a good point too. And I don't, I want people to know that they have those options to tap into because some agencies, I've done a little bit of work for some other providers and they don't make you have a support person in your home study. It's, it's just like, oh, who really? do you have? Yeah, if they're available. And for oh. us, that's one thing I really wow. was proud of that we implemented because it's important that you at least need to have somebody who's yes. going to get cleared, jump through all the hoops <clears throat> and be a support person because you never know. And we did it primarily for an emergency. Ooh, if there, absolutely. Yeah, if something happens or, right. you know, you need to do or whatever. Or if you have three kids in your house and one has to go to the hospital, you don't want three kids to the hospital. Yeah, exactly. You need someone to watch the other ones. So I think that's, mm-hmm. that's a good point to bring up is just making sure that everybody's responsible for their own self-care. We can try and collectively, you know, tap into what other people are doing, but it's going to look different for everybody. Right. So I think that's a... I think it was also cool that you said you set boundaries with your families from the get-go mm-hmm. I think I had a hard time with that and I felt like it was rude mm-hmm. when like rude of me to set those boundaries but it's really not like no the older I've gotten and I'm a mom now it's it's good to have those expectations from the get-go so everyone knows like hey I'm not being rude this is just these are my expectations and these are my boundaries and I'm yeah. sorry if you don't agree with those but that's that's how it is yeah and I not to plot twist we, we I want to loop back around but <laughs> you said something <laughs> that I just want to ask you specifically about right. Lauren is like <clears throat> how did becoming a mom change like change or shape like did it change for you as far as like your career in this the career that you're in or just the role that you have like becoming a mother I mean I don't even know what I'm trying to ask like hearing all the stuff that you hear like, like did your perspective on the world change yeah or? like then you have these children that you're solely responsible you know you protect these kids that are in your caseload right. but then it's like in, at the advocacy center but then it's like in the families and then you have your own mm-hmm. is it just does it change things like once you have kids being in that field especially in your role right. I guess absolutely I think you have to just know that well, I'll say too that where I worked was excellent about family time and professional. Good. So they really were very supportive of, okay, you are a mom now, and that is going to come first. And so even giving my resignation and saying my resignation is coming because I'm going to be mom was honored and well accepted, which I don't think happens at a lot of places. And so I, I speak to that, that that was really, it really helped me in my decision. Yeah. Um, but it, it is so important because work had to stay work and then my home life had to be home life. Mm-hmm. I do think that people thought I was a little crazy for the boundaries that I put in place around my family, especially having a daughter. Mm -hmm. I listened to sex abuse cases, physical abuse cases Mm -hmm. every single day. Um, And while I think it's so important to have the team around you, to have the the ability to kind of bounce back and have those conversations about it, when you go home, you don't. My spouse never heard about what I saw every day. One, because of confidentiality and I couldn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. And two, because he didn't sign up to be a part of what I signed up to carry. And Mm -hmm. so call it a calling or whatever you want to call it we didn't talk about it and so he knew what I did but he never was a part of it he would come and volunteer at the agency occasionally and and you know Mm -hmm. be cleared for that but um, we really did a good job of keeping work work Mm -hmm. and family life family life yeah 
So I guess a, a little bit about self-care, like what was your outlet when things would, you know, because I feel like for foster care, I mean, we hear about sexual abuse cases and that, but I do feel like the advocacy center, it's probably, a, you know, if law enforcement's getting involved, there's probably a, a lot, mm-hmm. maybe more in depth. Um, so, I mean, how did you, how do you, I mean, if you can't talk about it just because of confidentiality, I know you have your coworkers and stuff, but mm-hmm. how do you get through that? I mean, I know, right. like, what was that personally for you like? So the first thing I did was found a therapist that understood my my role mm-hmm. in what I did. Mm-hmm. She had actually been a therapist and did some of her hours at an advocacy center, so she understood what oh, we nice. saw every day. Yeah. yeah, so that was really important to me. I had been in therapy for years um, mm-hmm. for personal reasons, and no one ever understood when I would bring them not that I would bring them cases necessarily, but to say to them, like, this is exhausting. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the therapist being able to say, that is exhausting. And here, let's find ways to help you. And so one of the things would be after a week of trial, because we did go to court with our families. Mm. So we would hear and see. And for me personally, seeing the offender made everything real. And so for two years, while you're working the case, you can kind of block it out and be like, okay, I got this. Like this happened. And this is this child's truth, and mm-hmm. it's really terrible, and it sucks. Yeah. But you don't put a face to the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. When you go to trial, you put a face to the perpetrator, Ugh. and it is gut wrenching. Yeah, it's awful. And so sitting there and seeing that, I would have to make. Those were the weeks that I had a lot of self care, mm-hmm. um, whether that be extra therapy or. Um, I would go to bed really early on those weeks. It completely drained Draining me. Mentally, yeah, yes. taxing. So it's like I'm in bed by 7 p.m. Like, you got this. I'm, I'm done. And your husband understood that. I mean, yes, yeah, very much. He knows you well mm-hmm. enough. Wow, that's interesting. That's a good point, though, because I feel like for a foster our foster families, it's like, you know, you sometimes they see the biological parents, but I feel like one of the things that they talk about in the home study is like, are you able to support biological family members? Because that's our goal, right? Reunification right. is the goal. And sometimes you read these cases and you hear about these stories and you're just, and I know a lot of foster parents, especially who are new to the field, are just like, oh my gosh, I could never. And you, they don't want to interact with mm-hmm. that bio mm-hmm. family member or whoever it was. And so seeing those people just makes it even more real. Right. Right. And so if you're struggling with that or you're having issues, I mean, we want you to be able to have case managers and your support people around you. But even therapy is a great option just to right. like, you know, have Absolutely. an outlet for yourself. Because mm-hmm. I think that's important that people kind of bottle it up and don't, you know, don't process. Well, especially like you were saying, your spouse had, was never in that field. He didn't sign up for that. Right. So you can't come home and unload everything because one, they don't even know what you're talking about. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And not everybody, not that they don't have a heart for it, but like not everybody just, everybody is built for different things. Right. Like Tyler, he does, he's like, I don't even want to know. He's like, I know the world sucks. Right. Mm -hmm. He's like, I can't. I can't take that on like you take that on. No. And I have to, years ago, I was like, what do you need? There's stuff going on and we can go do this and we can do that. And he's, I, I understand it now. Like you yeah. can't take on the whole world. It's just too overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though sometimes I think our hearts want to, you want to rescue everyone. Absolutely. But it's just not, not doable. Mm-mm. Okay. No, that's a good point. I just kind of wanted to know as, you know, as a, I feel like as a mother, you, you become a mother and it truly changes everything. Mm-hmm. You think that you have it all figured out and then it's like, oh, here's this kid and you have to figure out everything for them and ultimately you just want to protect them. Right. And the world is crazy and it's nuts, but parenthood is and motherhood is a blessing and it's beautiful and mm-hmm. that's our purpose, right? But just it kind of shifts everything when you know mm-hmm. the meanness is exists in our world, right. unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So you're taking, I guess we could call it a pause in your career as 
focusing on motherhood right now. Right. But what do you think, I mean, as far as like longevity in the career, in the field and, you know, making sure that people are not, that you're not burnt out, your goal is to go back to this field. I mean, what do you think? How long have you been out? So I delivered in March. My girls were born in March and so I just resigned after maternity leave. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So not, not long. Just a couple months, four months. A couple months. You're still little. Mm-hmm. Still babies. What do you think, though? I mean, how do you think going back with a family three, obviously it's still new, but how do you think you'll you'll do that? Do you mm-hmm. think about what's next? for? Yeah, I think part-time work may be something that I yeah. consider. PRN positions, just to kind of keep my foot in the door a little mm-hmm. bit, staying connected, all mm-hmm. of those things. But I think being able to recognize, and I'll be really honest, like leaving the field took me probably a year of processing even Mm -hmm. before I was pregnant was, okay, my family is first and this can become really taxing. And is this really what I want to do? Or do I want to take a pause and make the next few years of my child's life and be a part of them Mm -hmm. and be extremely present and then look at what else can be out there? Mm -hmm. I think too, sometimes in social work, and one of the reasons why I selected that as my degree was, like I said earlier, you can kind of do whatever you want with it. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate that that is how it is. I can go into hospital settings. I can go do, you know, um, the elderly and all these other options that are out there working in a school. And so I think it's important as a social worker not to be so confined in the way of thinking that this is it for you. And so being able to explore other options Mm -hmm. is something that I'm really excited about. I love child welfare and I think I'll stay in the realm of child welfare to some capacity. But I think there's so much out there that people don't realize and they get stuck and comfortable in an environment. And that's one thing that I don't want is to become complacent as a social worker because then you stop growing, which then affects in turn affects your clients, right? And so like, I think being able to recognize that, so. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of people don't I think it's so important. I think that our generation is really molding or creating a new, I don't even, like avenue Mm -hmm. for jobs. I feel like generations before us stayed at their job for 20, 30, 40 years. And like they they stuck with a job, they got a job at 18 and they're gonna retire Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Then it's just different now. Mm -hmm. like. The we point, still see some of those. Um, absolutely. Case, case it happens all, all the time. Yeah. And, you know, case managers, caseworkers stay in the same position for years and years and years because they're comfortable. Right. Or they don't want to grow or you know, whatever. They might love it. Or maybe they just don't know that or, they can't. Or maybe grow. they don't know that they can't. Or maybe they don't have the support in someone saying, hey, there's more out there. There's better out there. Right. That's the point of having a job to always keep moving forward mm-hmm. and bettering yourself and bettering the life around you. And I think that's very cool for you to say because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't think that. Yeah, and just being self-aware because you're thirsty to grow. I feel like you've always been, mm-hmm. you're, you're just thirsty, which is, is awesome because a lot of people, are like you said, just want to get a job to draw a paycheck, right? That's mm-hmm. not what it is for you. The right. paycheck is great because you've got family and kids to take care of, but it's like you want to know that you're serving your purpose that you were put here for. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you do that very well. Mm-hmm. And I think being thirsty for more, it's right. Like to best serve your clients or who, and whoever they are, mm-hmm. you can't do that if you're, you, I mean, some people are still in their positions after 20 years and they're right. living their life. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And great for you. I don't know many that are doing that, <laughs> but who are not miserable. Right. But um, yeah, I think, like you said, it's just interesting that our generation's kind of maybe creating their own. And two, for me, I guess after becoming a mom, I love the boys, but I, I feel like, I just feel like the environments and, you know, there's lots of environments out there, but I just feel like most 
just don't have a, a way to. What are you? I'm just waiting for Alexis what you're is looking say. at me crazy. <laughs> I just don't feel like they have a way to serve mothers well, right. and that frustrates me. So it's right. and it's nice to hear and refreshing that your resignation was accepted well. That yeah. it's as it should right. because your kids come first, your family comes first. And, and they were choice. always very honoring of that. Like, family yeah. came first. Family is, this is what you are called to be and your mm-hmm. job, yeah. you know, will be here or you'll go do something else. Like, mm-hmm. that was always just kind of the mentality and yeah. we appreciate it's your time. It's ludicrous to think that companies are just like, yeah, you're a mom now. Get back to work. For our hearts, us three are on this table, I know we have good hearts, passionate about what we do, and, and want to be able to, to continue to do so. But we also have little personal little hearts that we need right. time to focus on too and there has to be a way to do both I think the thing that also helped me realize this is with all due respect but my job is going to get posted tomorrow the day I resign yes mm-hmm. at home they're either going to get me or they're not going to get me mm-hmm. I'm re- replaceable at work and so having that realization of okay I was very much valued in my environment and I loved it and I gave my all to that when I was mm-hmm. there and speak highly of that place and would return to it if I could. Yeah. Had a lot of tears when I left it. Mm -hmm. But to know that I'm home for a reason and to foster that community and that opportunity well for however long I have it is so important. I mean, I've listened to podcasts on attachment and all these things like Mm -hmm. the role of the mom. And we have to give ourselves credit and and do what we do best, which is being home. Mm -hmm. And we got into this field, I think, because we saw a lot of the lack of attachment and the lack of those initial first few years at home for these kids and what does that do for them in the long term you know yeah. about a scores we know about all these things with the research and so I'm sitting here going okay what is my kid going to say about me when they're 25 years old and they mm-hmm. reflect back on their child was I present or was I not yeah and not all agencies can do it well mine did it well but mine had to just be a personal conviction for me to leave but I also think we have to talk about burnout when we talk about the people that have been in the field for 20 plus years mm-hmm. and wonder how have you not been burnt out by this? Like you yeah. must have a really good support system if you are still in this. Um, because and doing it well. And doing it well. Yeah. Because the, the field changes. And so you have to be able to adapt with it. I mean, things are constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. And if you're not willing to be moldable and, and go with the flow of what's happening around you. Absolutely. You're going to burn out really quick. Yeah. It was very well said. Yeah. And unfortunately, I feel like that is that is what's happening with some of the people that have been there for so long, you know? Mm-hmm. Or people get into it and they, the turnover is so quick. Because, and I think that frustrates a lot of foster families. I think it frustrates biological family members, um, especially for the, like the foster care piece of it. But I think people get into it and they expect you know it to be something and then it's way more taxing way more demanding mm-hmm. than they think right and then it's you know they pull out and it's that's only affecting the kids and the families that they serve and really you're not getting paid very much well, i was going to say you get into also the it's just an entry level position yeah i mean in school with a bachelor's degree they kind of give you this overview of here's the things you can do with a bachelor's degree yeah and it's very limited mm-hmm. and so if you have any passion or desire to go anywhere else or do anything else, then it requires a master's. And that's not available for everyone. That's more right. education, more money put out. And so you have to identify within the field of social work, period. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to do anything beyond a bachelor's degree. And now mm-hmm. here I am with a license and, and on with a master's degree. And the next step has to be, you got to get your clinical. If you want to do anything else from here, you got to go to the clinical. Well, that's two more years. Mm-hmm. It's not education, but it's two more years back in the yeah. field doing 
the clinical setting with right. a supervisor oh. that you have to hire. So then that's money. And so wow. being able to sit here and go, 2017, when I graduated with my bachelor's, they were like, the master's is it. That's, you're good there. You're golden. Mm. Well, now it's, it's a clinical. More more. It's more, more, more. And that can be really overwhelming to a brand new social worker. It's true. Because you think you're going to get into this. And shoot, I feel like I've spent just as much yeah. time as a doctor has. And I definitely don't make the salary. <laughs> right. no, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So how do you feel like when you do go back or if you do go back or whatever that looks like mm-hmm. just as a community as a whole for people who are listening and us in general like how do we bring awareness to what's going on in our world i guess really with where you were at before what did you guys do any like community awareness like mm-hmm. how to give back how to serve the kids who may be having right. um, family things like i guess mm-hmm. speak to that yeah, so there was a community educator position at our um, agency, and then they're going into schools and educating on what are safe touches, what are appropriate touches. And mm-hmm. I think as caregivers, it's one of the things we were kind of talking about beforehand is what are the anatomical correct terms for your child's private Absolutely. parts? Mm-hmm. And calling them at that. Statistics show that children are less likely to be abused when they call their body part the accurate term mm-hmm. because that offender is going to be more intimidated by the child of Using when they the say yes oh. mm-hmm. so it's bringing a lot of awareness to that the other thing i would say and so many people don't realize this in the state of texas you are a mandated reporter if you hear something you have to say something and so many times you would have the conversation with parents or with youth leaders or mm-hmm. not necessarily school professionals because they know but so many times people in the community a trusted individual that a child came to and they said they didn't know what to do with this information it's not your job to investigate the case there's a professional that's ready mm-hmm. and eager and willing to do it yeah it is your job to hear what the child says and make the report super easy you can go online you can do it over the phone you can call the police but it's your responsibility to make the report yeah and reporting is through the hotline right correct the dfps Mm -hmm. hotline Mm -hmm. yeah and i think maybe we'll post that just because i think it's everyone truly needs to know it remember how when y'all were little well y'all you're younger than me but there were stickers on my like for everything like on your magnets on your fridge i feel like that should there probably is one that has the hotline number but there should be Mm -hmm. because just like pizza hut all the things that people used to Know, right. You know, for right. your landline. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a good number that people need to know where you can report it because Yeah, yeah. definitely. And to know that when you're reporting, you're reporting confidentially. Yeah, yes. it's anonymous. You anonymous. can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't have to, but you I think that's that's one thing that gets a lot of people is is it gonna be anonymous and maybe they just don't have a lot of information. But the worker cannot share who reported it. Right. So even if you report as Carrie Evans, then all of a sudden they don't they can't use that information Mm -hmm. oh that's good to know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think even if you have just a little bit of information you need to need to say something Mm -hmm. because say something say say something something. Mm -hmm. yeah a lot of people are just so scared to do that you know Mm -hmm. i think those are good points because i think creating community awareness is huge a lot of people just don't understand truly what's going on in the world we talked a little bit before the podcast about you know the new movie that's out about human trafficking and how it's bringing awareness which is great but just understanding people need to know that things are happening and that's what you know unfortunately there is a need for foster care unfortunately there is a need for advocacy centers and there will always be a need. and unfortunately there, there always, probably always will be right. you know and that's devastating to know but if we can all keep our eyes peeled be educated to know if something doesn't seem right or something just look into it further mm-hmm. to protect mm-hmm. you know the new generation that 
potentially is going to be is exposed to all these things this is kind of a personal question this is something i've talked to my um, mom girlfriends about what is your view on sleepovers i'm very much against them Mm -hmm. i have three girls and so i am very mindful we have doors open policy Mm -hmm. in my house any child ever comes over to our house they could be the same age they could be a couple years older than my daughter doors stay open and i'm leaning against sleepovers Mm -hmm. i don't feel like anything good ever comes out of them i agree that's so interesting i agree about the open door and i agree about sleepovers Mm -hmm. yeah is that did y'all get that from i mean you're just your experience within the field or is that an education thing i think it's both probably both okay well i know that sexual abuse usually happens with people that you know that is the highest statistic right it's not the white man that we were told when, yeah. when we were driving down. Look out for the ice cream <laughs> the, man the ice cream or whatever. Man. Right. I still look at nasty bands and I'm like, oh, I mean, we're still a little cringed out by them for yeah. sure. We always have the joke at work, like, you can spot an offender when you see one, which I don't know if that's really true, but you know, <laughs> yeah. some yeah. of them just really do run the stereotype of that. Yeah. Um, but it's really not true. I mean, it really is. And that is what is so challenging when I worked in this role was caregivers completely shocked that it was happening to their child because they were with someone it was they with trusted. A trusting adult. Mm-hmm. They knew them, they trusted them. It's absolutely devastating, right? And so we have had the conversations in our household of what they're allowed to do mm-hmm. and who they're allowed to be left alone with. Mm-hmm. When you say so it's not an in-home offender, so like is it like just a family friend or like a pa- like pastor like what is that do you I mean are you listening? well it could have been in home it could have been siblings it could have been parents mm-hmm. but it also could be an out-of-home offender so we kind of you see abuse happen to anybody mm-hmm. right but out From of home, just family friends or pastor neighbors. family friends teachers mm-hmm. I mean it really are, could be anybody and are these kids coming to their parents and saying hey this is inappropriate or is it kind of being found out through many different ways yeah it's being found out through many different Interesting. It is interesting. Yeah, it's really sad. Yeah, and I—I I mean, I know you get this all the time. I there's—I don't know that I could do that. I mean, I don't know. It intrigues me, but I—it's it baffling me to me. It is baffling. I will say now that I'm removed from the field, you don't realize how much secondary trauma you're absorbing when mm-hmm. you're in the field. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really happy now that to you're be, out of it. You're yes. like, oh gosh. Well, because your support system is who you work with, and so being able to just go down the hallway and say this affected me, or mm-hmm. yeah. I'm processing this, and they know exactly what you're processing, mm-hmm. and it's safe to talk about it there. Now you're home, and you're still processing, processing, mm-hmm. and remembering mm-hmm. the things that you saw or heard mm-hmm. about for the last five years. Yeah. So I'm having to be really intentional about what are the safeguards set around me now that I'm not in it every day. Yeah. Is it kind of refreshing? I mean, I know you loved your job and all that, but like, is it kind of refreshing just to like, from a mental standpoint to like not be hearing all those Oh, 100%. Things? I think yeah. I was probably crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a little paranoid. And that's like, well, no. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think it would be, it make, you have to be mentally strong and I'm glad that you had certain things in place, but Otherwise, I mean, it would make you just, you'd right. want to live in a bubble. I mean, hell, I still do. I know. Right. The time. We talk about this all the time. It is so hard. And I think having girls terrified me mm-hmm. 10 times more than if I had a boy. Yeah. I'm not to say that the abuse doesn't happen to boys because it sure. does. But Absolutely. Just what I know from having girls. And I'm just, because girls want to have sleepovers, I think, more than boys do. Right. Or girls are sometimes an easier target yeah whatever and you know our offenders are 
predominantly male mm-hmm. offenders. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's just really interesting. Yeah. I just hope that people take away from this, like being just being mindful. Everyone ha- can have, you know, create their own opinion about certain things. But it's like just being more mindful that sometimes it's not about what other people, like, you know, if you have people over into your home, you have to be mindful about what, what anyone can say. Because like you were saying earlier, right? Mm-hmm. One per- All it takes is one person, one child to say something. Right. And it could just kind of tail turn into a full blown investigation. Yeah. And I don't I don't want to say that and like speak to like, you know, just be I mean I want people to be mindful to be guarded, but like just be mindful. It doesn't mean you have to operate any differently. And not even sexual abuse. I think of guns. Mm-hmm. I think of my kid going to someone's house who doesn't have their guns locked up and that terrifies me. Right. It happens all the time. Kids are playing around with guns and then someone gets shot, mm-hmm. something happens you need to teach them gun safety you need to teach them the animal anatomical correct way to talk about their private parts mm-hmm. you need to have these conversations with your kids as uncomfortable as it is right mm-hmm. and i think our generation is doing a much better job mm-hmm. of that of having these conversations being aware all the things but the things i got to grow up with and have access to i think too social media is a huge mm-hmm. issue huge 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 yes and so and how do you i mean this is totally kind of off topic but how do you have y'all thought about this? Like, how do you feel like as a parent, what's the strategy for that? Have y'all thought about mm-hmm. that? I know they're little. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I feel like as an adult, it's hard to navigate. Yeah. I remember a couple years ago, I posted something about car seats. Oh uh-huh. my God. Something about car seats. Kids should be in a car seat rear facing for X amount of time. Was this on I, Facebook, Instagram? I think it was on Instagram. Okay. This is so funny. I haven't thought about this in a long time. <laughs> and I saw someone post a little tiny baby. He looked little, probably one, forward facing. And it was a friend who I thought was a friend of mine. And I said, hey, girl, I used to be a case manager. We did trainings on car seats. I know you're a mom. I don't want to, you know, nitpick you, but it's probably safest for him to be turned around. Mm. I would want someone to tell me that. Right. Because I want my child to be safe. Yeah. And it blew up. I'm telling you. Did you comment on the picture? Yeah, on a picture that she posted. It was just a private message. Oh. But it was also the same day that I posted about rear-facing. I, like, reposted Mm. about rear-facing curses. She Mm. thought that, one, I was mom-shaming. And she was an influencer or something, so she had thousands of followers or whatever. Oh, you picked she them blew, yeah. and I know. And I, I had the best intentions. I know. I was bawling all night. She cussed me out. She blocked me on everything. Oh, no. She blasted my name and my company on Instagram for all of her followers to see. All these other moms got on my my page. They were messaging me, telling me how much of a mom shamer I am, how terrible I am. Uh, all this crap. So I had to take my business name off my profile. I had to block her. And this was a girl that I've hung out with many times. Yeah, right. And I was like, okay, well, she didn't want the advice today. Mm -hmm. And I learned that I probably shouldn't say anything. So I'm not going to. So Mm -hmm. I'll post what I want to post. And I just won't comment on other people's stuff. So that was me as an adult. Right. And that was a form of bullying. And it did affect me. It was hurtful. Right. So I can't imagine being a... 10 year old girl mm-hmm. and having girls snapchat or instagram or do all these ugly things people are mean in person as a child in school mm-hmm. i can't imagine having a phone yeah mm-hmm. some of the stories i hear just about schools and the bullying and all the stuff i'm like 
I was telling my husband in the car the other day, I was like, I know that when I was in middle school, it's hard anyways because everyone's just awkward. But, like, everyone's awkward together. And Mm. I feel like when I was little, it was I had my my core group of friends, Mm -hmm. and there were other groups. And we might have, like, nitpicked or, like, made fun of or whatever. But I never would have, like, been like, you're fat, you're ugly, Mm -hmm. you're poor. yeah, no, neither. Would have done that, but I feel like it's because people have phones, and so they're like taking pictures of like someone's leg or taking pictures of like whatever, and then just talking about it, and then it gets outed somehow, and it just gets ugly so quickly. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just want, don't even want them to have a phone, which I know is ridiculous, right? But like, I remember I got a phone in high school, and it was completely. I mean, I loved it because I was playing like Snake and stuff in class. Oh yeah, and I shouldn't yeah. have been, but it was not all the. Right. snapping and all that because we didn't have that right. but I just feel like now I I don't know and it's hard to turn it off as an adult it's hard to be pre- fully present when I have my phone right next to me I have to literally put it up and put it on silent right do not disturb so I can have you know well and the apps time. that give so much access to children oh gosh it's so dangerous yeah that parents have no idea even exist and so part of my role would be doing education um one of the things I developed was like a quarterly group for parents to come and have oh. education. And we had a class where law enforcement came and spoke to parents about internet safety and um, about the different technology and apps that kids were using. And Mm-mm. yeah, because it's, parents don't even know half the They apps. have no idea. Mm-hmm. They think that they're taking their phone at night and they're checking it. But did you know that you're, you can take apps off of the main screen and hide it or that the app um, on some of these apps, they may be like a different cover and say a different name, so then it's a different app when you open That's it. That's so scary. I mean, kids are finding ways to get into chat rooms, to get into app like access. I'm sorry, but TikTok is an app that I will never have. I don't have it on my own phone. It's a no for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I only have Facebook and Instagram. I got rid of Snapchat. Like, I think that there are so much negative things that can mm-hmm. come out of apps that are just not appropriate. I mean, we had cases that would have tick from TikTok challenges. Like teenager teenagers doing really dumb stuff because of TikTok challenges. Yeah, yeah, I don't understand that. I don't either. And so it's like you've got undeveloped brains. Yeah. And then you've got a whole world of social media with yeah. access to the entire mm-hmm. world in their pocket. No. And so we would always tell parents, like, you have to be so mindful mm-hmm. of what your child has access to and what other people have access to your child about. And I actually did a training that I thought was phenomenal that was just so eye-opening to me of like your profile being locked on your Instagram, Mm -hmm. right? So like as mom, mine's locked in private or whatever you call it. And so for people that have public accounts, she had us, she was a detective and she had us go through (laughs) on Instagram and pull up your homepage and type in like a high school, for example, and how many people tagged their location Uh while they're currently there. So like moms think it's so cool. My number one, if I'm going to get on this rant, let me go on it. Okay. My number one thing (laughs) is do not post your kid on back to school because we're Mm -hmm. approaching back to school. Here we go. Do not post your child in a t-shirt or with your bumper sticker, or with the sign that says my kid is an academic achiever at Blank <laughs> Elementary, yeah. it's not that good. What does that do? It tells any person driving down the street, following you behind the car, anything that like that, that they go to that school. That's and then they're true. gonna call them by their name when they're crossing across the street. Aren't you, you're the big one, that you're, the monograms are a hard pass for you. Absolutely. <laughs> and I won't do that because of you. Mine, I have thought of you, I, just now you're saying that, but mine both have monogram lunch boxes, all the things. Oh no, yeah, no hard pass. Hard I remember pass. that. Yep. But they just have the initials, right? They don't have the full name. Oh, 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 
Because then anybody can behind him be like, hey, hey Chandler. Chandler. Yep. And, and they're like, going to turn. Yeah. Yes. How I'm do you sorry. know my name? Oh, uh-huh. God. Okay. We're going to get new backpacks. Yes. Yeah. In two and a half weeks. Uh, so like just being so aware. Like, parents think it's so cute. So anyways, this detective had us pull it up on our phone and was like, okay, type in this school. Now go through and look. And, I mean, people are posting just the most foolish things. And they're tagging this location. Or it's coming up with a hashtag. And you can find out. So then she goes, okay, click that page. Great. It's public. So now you can find this whole girl's story about this one public post because of all the things that they're posting. Mm-hmm. And we for sure tracked it all the way down. You can turn on your like location on your photos. And she's like, click that. Watch. People that are perpetrators are so high tech. They know what they're doing. And they'll track your locations based on the photographics or the uh, geo map of your photo. It's disgusting. It's really. disgusting. Yeah. Like, I think about, Brennan watches all these, like, um, inmate jail shows because he's just weird. And it's like, the stuff that these inmates can come up with, and it's kind of like the perpetrators mm-hmm. when you said that. I'm like, they're just being in jail Why with don't nothing. you use that intelligence mm-hmm. for yes. other things? Right. You would be successful. Right. Life, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. The social media thing is, t- is a tough, tough mm-hmm. thing. And, um, all those are good points. I mean, obviously, everyone's going to do it how they want. And, and I think mm-hmm. it's important for people to understand, especially you guys with social work backgrounds. Like, it's just a different world that we are. I always tell people, like, it's 100% of our population that we see. So, of course, there's different mm-hmm. defense and protective mechanisms that we think of instantly. Right. But it's I think it's good information just to get out there because people, yeah. you have to be hypervigilant. All it takes is one time. Mm-hmm. And then people are going to be in the advocacy center. Stressful. With law enforcement with CPS, whatever, mm-hmm. and it's just not great. Mm-hmm. So be on alert, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess. Mm-hmm. I guess just be more mindful of your surroundings and what you're putting out there. Yeah, but then knowing, too, that, you know, God forbid if things happen, I mean, they, unfortunately they happen every day, and there are great places to mm-hmm. go. I know a lot of people have mixed feelings about CPS and all that stuff, and I get it, but I just hope that people understand that there are good people, like we talked about with our mm-hmm. coworkers, yeah. um, Lauren's one of those, but you know there are good people with good hearts that are trying to do good work and if if kids have to be in foster care or at an advocacy center we want to make it resourceful and beneficial and try and help work through whatever trauma these kids are experiencing absolutely and we want caregivers and people who are in this field trying to support these people to do right by themselves and and take care Mm -hmm. of themselves um with Mm -hmm. you know self-care and um, boundaries and all those things so Right. I think this was a good conversation. Loved I think it. so too. I loved it. I'm so happy. happy that you said yes. I think you were on our list right out of the gate. I, uh-huh. Alexis and I were talking. Mm-hmm. We thought about you. I think, like we said, you have very strong, you know, um, feelings about certain things. I think that's it's based on and suited from your education, from your experience, and I think it's admirable just that you don't waver in that. Right? You know what you know, and you feel passionate about it, and. I think the clients that you've served and the families you have served are better for it, for working with you. Yeah. Um, I think it takes a huge leap of faith as a mm-hmm. mom to press pause on your career, but yeah, it's worth it. And I'm sure at some point you'll figure your way yeah. back into I'm it. I'm sure I will. But I appreciate you giving your knowledge and sharing it with everyone. I think that it's very, very beneficial. Do you feel like you went to therapy? Today uh-huh. on this podcast? <laughs> Listen, she goes to a real therapist. <laughs> Most people are like, it's therapeutic, right? And they're like, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I know that we can be with the therapist. Hey, it was fun. It was, it was fun. Good. It was a good old time. <laughs> it was fun. Talking about the things. It was yeah. good. Love it. I love it. All right. Well, thank you for doing this. Thanks, Lauren. Of course. Bye, everyone. Bye.